Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now, and you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Drew Gilpin Faust is the author of Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. Drew is Arthur Kingsley Porter University Research Professor at Harvard University, where she served as president from 2007 to 2018. She came to Harvard in 2001 as founding dean of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study after 25 years on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. Faust is the author of several books, including Necessary Trouble, This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, winner of the Bancroft Prize, and a finalist for the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize, and Mothers of Invention, Women of the Slaveholding South in the American Civil War, which won the Frances Parkman Prize. She and her husband live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Drew. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your memoir, Necessary Trouble, Growing Up at Mid-Century. Thank you for inviting me. 
It's my pleasure. I was so excited when I saw that you had a book coming out and I know it's not coming out, even though this will air closer to the time of your book, that this is a summer book. And I, as soon as I saw it, like in a catalog, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to talk to her. I can't wait to hear how did you end up becoming like the head of <laughs> like, how did this all happen? And when I, and I like poured over your book and, and all of it. And then I was curious as to why it started and stopped where you had it. And is there a continuation? Is there like a part two coming out next? And just maybe talk about the idea of even starting your book and, and how you, and which times you focused on the most and why. I was moved to write this book by my increasing sense that people today, especially young people, have misapprehensions or no understanding of what went on in the 1950s and 60s, and that it's being misrepresented or sometimes caricatured, and there's all this um, objection to the baby boomers and how baby boomers have failed. And I thought, I want to tell this story as I saw it and I remembered it. And that was in part because I've been a historian my whole life, and I've relied on testimony from people in the past, and I spent a lot of time listening to people in the past. And so I thought, while I'm still on this earth, I want to now tell and have the possibility of others listen to me and listen to my sense of the experience of those years and to outline in some degree my own life, but also how it fit within a broader set of choices and structures of society in that era. No single person can be representative. And of course, I'm not representative in, in so many dimensions. I came from a very privileged family and moved through life struggling with the upsides and the downsides of that. But nevertheless, a lot of the, the things around me that I did have to confront were larger structures that I think could be generalized to many more people as they made their choices and as the character of the 1950s and the 60s unfolded. You asked also, though, about why it stops when it did. Yeah, why did it stop? Yeah. I wanted it to keep going. So I stopped when I turned 21 and I cast my first vote. It was not legal to vote until you were 21 in 1968. But I cast my vote in a very fraught election that had occurred after two assassinations in the spring, Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King, and then the upheavals of the Democratic Convention. I'd just been launched into the world with a college degree. And what a world it was. And here were two choices in this election, neither of which reflected the anti-war sentiments that had mobilized so many of us during the preceding years. And so the, the kind of challenge of that election and the turning point it meant for me, and I think for the nation, was a really important marker in my life. I wanted to stop there because I really was writing about coming of age, growing up, and that's what this book it represents how do you find your way in the world and i i use a kind of theme of freedom and freedom in a, in a variety of dimensions including the civil rights movement including communism and the unfreedoms of the soviet bloc and then my own struggle for freedom from the conventions about young women that i found so constraining and so i felt that okay i turned 21 and then i have an education i have a job that supports me i've liberated myself in many ways intellectually from from the chains that had been imposed on me and this was the time to stop the memoir because i felt okay now i have to enact that freedom what am i going to use it for that's a whole other set of questions and and so it seemed a, it, it seemed a good stopping place so interesting. Well, I really enjoyed hearing all about your whole family history and particularly the 
threads of the military that were woven throughout so many branches of your family and how that affected not just the men, but the women and the families Mm -hmm. and particularly like all the different generations you had who had experience in this and how that ultimately ended up shaping you. Because today, you know, here I am, I'm 46, but it has not felt the same as the generations that you write about and the systemic changes, obviously, I mean, we all know this, but it's one thing to read about it in a history book. And it's another for you to take us through your family and, you know, the golden son who who sadly passed away and how even that has so many ripples all the way through and the different generations. So I don't know, maybe speak to that for a minute and just how how all of that, because of course the military and the government, it's not just a theoretical thing, right? It affects who is mm-hmm. even alive in your home and just mm-hmm. so much else. Mm-hmm. So it's both very personal and very much more than personal in its in its impact. There's a chapter in the book, which is a little odd for a memoir because it's not something I remember. It's about World War One and about my family's experience in World War One, And it's based on a set of letters that, that have been preserved back and forth between different members of the family during the war. And it really focuses on my great uncle, who I never met. He was killed just before, weeks before the war ended in 1918. He was a flyer, which was a very dangerous role in that primitive era of flying. And his plane fell into the North Sea and he was killed. At that time, his father, my great-grandfather, who had been in the military, had been to West Point, graduated in the early 1880s from West Point, was serving in his late 50s as a general on the Western Front. And so this news comes to him, but he can't leave his post because there's very heavy fighting just as the war's ending. The news comes to my grandmother, the dead person's sister, and her mother in Knoxville, Tennessee, in the midst of the influenza. And they all have to grapple with this terrible loss of the golden boy, the son on whom so many expectations had been placed. And for my grandmother, this is devastating in so many ways, losing this wonderful brother whom she idealized. But she writes to her father a consolation letter where she says she knows that the family will never be the same because he was the family line that was going to carry the family forward. And she writes a line, a girl is never the same. And she is a kind of second-class citizen in this family. And she says the wrong one died. And she spends her whole life, in a sense, feeling a girl is never the same, lives into her 80s, so well into the next part of the century and well into my own life. But I think she's deeply affected by this loss and it shapes her marriage, it shapes her attitudes towards the world, it shapes her sense of her own possibilities. And so then as she grows up, she has a child right after the war when her husband comes home safely. He was also a flyer, but he made it through. So he comes home and they have a child right away. And she names this child for the dead brother, my father. This is my father, born in 1919. And of course, as he comes into his adulthood, he goes off to war. And so if you just think about these generations of sending sons to war, my grandmother is terrified that she will lose him or his brother, both of whom are in the military in the Second World War. And I have letters back and forth from my father to his family about his experience in World War II. And I think that experience, he lived, he survived. He found the military very moving and gratifying, and he felt it made a huge contribution to the world in helping Patton liberate France. 
But it distorts our family once again, because he just married and left my mother with my older brother and went off to war and did the most important thing in his life, in his view. And so when he came back to all of us, it was an afterthought. And I think their marriage was affected by that separation, by what he'd experienced and how he valued it and understood it, but was also horrified by parts of it that then affected his life. So fast forward to when my older brother is coming of age in the 1960s, and we have the Vietnam War. And so it's as if a generation is defined by the wars that each one seems to fight in this part of the 20th century. And for me, that third war, the Vietnam War, was defining because I was such an activist opposing it. And so that was a very important part of my young adulthood and my understanding of my commitment as a citizen, my obligations as a human being. And as I watched so many young men in my college cohort being drafted or worrying about the draft, my brother went into the Navy because he didn't want to be in the ground troops, so he served four years in the Navy. But once again, lives shaped, often distorted by these military obligations and and demands that these three wars represented. So in a sense, the three wars are an arc that rests over the structure of this book from my first origins when I'm I'm born as a baby boomer. That means after the war. That's the very definition of my generation. Up through my own experience in relationship to the way the Vietnam War tore not just families apart and not just more than 50,000 deaths, but the nation torn apart by the experience of, of Vietnam. Wow. And then you have yourself where we totally understand you as a daughter, which I think, of course, informs how you end up growing up. I mean, here you are, this young, precocious, obviously brilliant woman, and your mother is does not even value your intelligence and, in fact, finds it almost offensive to her ideas of sen- her sensibilities related to what a lady should be. And that, of course, was forced upon her, not that she was mm-hmm. so excited about it herself, mm-hmm. and, and her own relationship And we understand like even her mother-in-law relationship because you tell us so much about your grandmother. Just really fascinating. So anyway, it comes to you who's now writing letters to Eisenhower and speaking your mind and doing all of this at a young age. I'm like, what did I do? I wrote a letter to my headmaster trying to get the Jewish holidays (laughs) off from school. Like literally that's what my parents saved about me. (laughs) That's my childhood letter. But anyway, and how how it really like put you in a position to listen to yourself and just continue to advocate for what you believe in. And I feel like there's part of your dad's sort of mission driven, like leftover from the military, like what you said about him feeling so important and how hard it is to take something that ideologically is so massively important. And then you know, change a diaper or do whatever mundane, like put the dryer sheets in or whatever. It's <laughs> it's hard to transition to that. So anyway, I feel like you've picked up the mantle in a way and just it, did it a slightly different way. And very interesting though. Well, I think you're right that in the post-war period that there was this sense of ethical challenge, a post-World War II period, that these issues had been so kind of black and white fighting the Nazis and and the heroes of World War II who'd done that. There's a kind of moral seriousness that that, that conveyed to many in in the post-war years. Of course, the 50s were in many ways just not that and were avoiding that. But at the same time, I think I picked up on 
my father had done these really brave things, what was going to happen next and what was what was my duty. And as I grew up as a girl in a family with three brothers, I was constantly feeling things weren't fair. I was asked to to be a lady and wear horrible organdy itchy dresses and do certain things or not do certain things that my brothers were allowed to do. It always made me mad. And so I believe that also attuned me to or sensitized me to the very segregated, unfair world in which I lived. And that out of my own gender inequities, I came to see much larger inequities in in Southern civilization. So you referred to this Eisenhower letter. It was a letter I wrote when I was nine years old to President Eisenhower. And it was prompted by the disputes in Virginia about school integration in the aftermath of Brown v. Board. My outrage when I suddenly realized that it was not an accident that my school was all white and that someone had prohibited Black students from coming to my school. And that was not fair. So I wrote to Eisenhower in support of integration and begged him to please integrate schools. And I invoked all this kind of religious imagery from my own Sunday school knowledge in a Protestant Episcopal church, kind of shaking my finger at Eisenhower, telling him what to do. I was a very... um, opinionated nine-year-old. So I sent this letter off. My parents had no idea I'd done it. And when I got this little formal acknowledgement back from the White House, they said, what's this about? And they were horrified because they accepted the basic views of Virginia and their era. And they knew they had trouble on their hands. And that's where the title comes from, that I was always making trouble. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, that's another piece of the book, which, uh, you know, carries through even for you're going to the Selma and all of the advocacy and activism, I should say, that you have been doing. And I loved how you depicted your father's relationship with, I think his name was Raphael. Raphael? It was Raphael. Yeah. Raphael, as if it were R-A-Y-F-I-E-L-D, that was spelled like the painter Raphael. Raphael. But we called him Raphael. Well, they had to set you know, and how he came in and after your mother passed away, and I'm so sorry about that, and how he was the one who was really his caretaker after that. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. sounded like the two of them were like, honestly, like BFFs back in the day. <laughs> like they were like buddies. And I, I feel like you did such a nice job of highlighting that friendship and relationship as much as it could be given the constraints of that era and time and place and all of that and um, how that even shaped some of your future activism. Well, it's interesting you you focus on the relationship between my father and Rayfield because it's such a complicated one and bespeaks the complexities of race relations in, in Virginia and the South generally in that era, and I think in eras before, um, before as well, because Rayfield did take care of my father. I think um, they were on one level very, I mean, Rayfield knew everything about him. My father was on one level devoted to Rayfield and was, you know, weeping at his funeral when he was asked to speak and was very moved in his remarks. Uh, But there nevertheless was a hierarchy and a distance. They never sat down at a table and ate together. Rayfield would eat in the kitchen. Daddy would eat in the dining room. That's what was expected. So there were lines that could not be broken. And there's a lot, I believe, about how Rayfield saw all of this that I do not know. There was speculation in the community that maybe he had founded a branch of the NAACP and was actually kind of secretly an activist on racial issues, even as he was so deferential to my father. So what what was going on in Rayfield's mind? And 
how much were their perceptions of this relationship different, even as they interacted in these very um, uh, kind of intense and intimate ways? Wow, that is really interesting. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are you in touch with his children or grandchildren? Oh, so sad. I am not. Well, you go on to talk about your time at Concord Academy and then Bryn Mawr. And by the way, my dad was responsible for getting rid of parietal hours at Yale. Uh-huh. <laughs> that is literally, he talks about that a lot. So you know, you know what the word means. <laughs> yes. I knew what the word meant. I love that your daughter did not, or whoever it was, was it your daughter? Somebody did not. Yes, my daughter. I was telling her proudly about what we'd done. And she said, um, what are parietals? You know, what are you talking about? I thought, well, that's a sign of success if she doesn't even know what it is. We really did eliminate it. Yeah. So was. what year was that that your father was at? Yep. He graduated in 69. Mm-hmm. So just the same era, exactly. Yeah, same era. Um, but uh, yeah, he was very proud of that. And also for bringing, for establishing something called the Yale Ballet Society, because he was trying to find a way to get girls on campus. <laughs> and uh, and it like a ballet appreciation society. So they would like go to the ballet in New York and bring, I don't know, he was, he's a character. But, That's uh, great. Yeah. Anyway. Well, then of course, through all of your advocacy and, and you end up becoming, um, you know, you end up becoming a leader, right? Like I would love to fast forward a little bit and just even get like the bullet points of post, post memoir here, mid-century times um, to becoming a leader. And and if you thought about a career in politics at all and, um, and where you, how you feel about things now. Career in politics. I never thought about a career in politics. I worked for two years after I graduated from college for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which was then a very new cabinet department. And it had just launched a new program called Model Cities, which was a program that was going to take an integrated, meaning not not racially integrated, but all kinds of different programs and, and problems seen holistically and try to see how the federal government could help improve the, the situation in cities. And during my college years, there had been... Um, really kind of riots and insurrections in cities every summer. And so the issue of urban problems and urban justice was 
very central in, in my mind and the mind of the country. So I went off to, to work for the federal government. And within two years, I was back in the academy and felt that universities were really the places in which I felt most comfortable, but also felt I could be most effective as um, a contributor to, to American life. And so I went to graduate school and got a PhD and then was hired by the University of Pennsylvania where I, I had gotten my degree and uh, worked on the faculty there for 25 years. And in my role as uh, with students, as teacher, and in my role writing about the origins of racial history in the United States, I wrote about the Old South, 19th century South slavery, and then began increasingly to write about war, which I think reflected my Vietnam interests and, and the ways that what we talked about earlier had affected me. And so I, I felt my influence was through my writings and also through an effort to make universities be the institutions that they could be in contributing to society. I didn't take on administrative roles, except those that were kind of forced upon me. You had to be a department chair every once in a while. You had to do things. But I felt the classroom was really where I wanted to be. And I had a child in 1982. And so the classroom and, and the teaching obligations rather than administrative ones fit better with that life of being a parent. But then I was invited uh, by the then president of Harvard to come and be the founding dean of the Radcliffe Institute at, at Harvard. In, uh, two th he invited me in 2000, but 2001 is when I arrived. And I, I did that partly my, because my daughter was out of the house. She'd gone off to college. And I felt that this was a an institute that was meant to help solve the problem of women at Harvard and to make relationships between Radcliffe and Harvard regularized by their merger and to also put a focus on the issues of gender within scholarship within the university. And I thought, boy, to do that at Harvard is such an important thing. To If they can get it right, maybe everybody else can get it right. And so that was the first really major administrative job I took on. And I found that I loved it. I found working with people on goals and advancing issues that actually had solutions rather than issues that lasted for 250 years or whatever I was looking at in my historical work um, was very gratifying. So I I continued with that and then was asked to be president in 2007 and I served as Harvard's president from 2007 to, to 2018. And that was a great, a great privilege and as well as an education in its own right. Oh my gosh. Do you feel like they've finally gotten it right with women? They've gotten it a lot better. It's <laughs> not, it's not entirely right. There's so many issues that still remain um, in terms of representation on the faculty, in terms of student lives, in terms of issues like sexual harassment. There's still lots to be done, but it's a much better situation than, than when I first arrived. Just to give you a, a story, not long after I arrived at the Radcliffe Institute, my very first days at Harvard University, a major administrator came to me and said, be sure you don't talk about women when you talk about issues, because that'll only discredit you. And it was as if anybody who saw women as a category had a special pleading or was trying to make up for their insufficiencies, or it wasn't something that should be central within Harvard's considerations. Women, insofar as they were there, should just fold in and be like everybody else who was always there. And that has certainly changed. We have voices talking about women 
thank goodness, all the time. And Harvard has just selected a wonderful new president who will take office in July, who is an African-American woman, political scientist. This would have been completely unimaginable when I arrived at Harvard. And uh, now there she is. So change happens. Change happens. Well, I feel like my own family is like a little microcosm of the changing times. My grandfather went to Harvard Business School and graduated in 1939 Mm -hmm. during the war. Uh, Like he couldn't get a job on Wall Street because um, they thought that, you know, unless you were from a very well-to-do German Jewish family, which he was not, that they would be too discriminated against. So he ended up going into Mm -hmm. retail. Then my father graduated in 1972 and then went into finance. And then I graduated in 2003 as like the woman and my dad actually. So 2003 from Harvard Business School? Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, that's great. My mother worked at Harvard Business School because her dad had gone there. And so she was sort of trying to pick up a husband or I don't know what, but anyway, she, uh, so she went, she got a job there and that's how she met my dad. And then I went like as the student. So I felt really good about that. And then I wonder, like, I wonder if one of my kids is going to end up there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my class was only 30% women, something like that. So I don't know what the percentage I, is today. It's closer to 50 now at the Harvard Business School. And there's been a lot of focus on women's issues and Know, bringing women more folks. For example, the whole grading system, yep. grade based on who's loudest and, and yes. steals the floor from everyone else. And that's a kind of gendered way of rewarding students for class participation of that sort. So lots of scrutiny. And I wonder, have you been back to any of the events? I know they're often events for women alums. No, but my, I guess my 20th reunion is coming up or by the time this airs, I will have gone. Uh-huh. Uh, Um, So we'll see how how it is there. But no, I haven't. Because you can get a take on whether things have changed. Yeah. Give a a report card. Report card, yes. Um, So what now? You you have this book coming out. What would you like to tackle after this? Well, I'm I'm sort of mulling about a new book project and reading stuff and thinking about what I might do. I've felt for a long time that I'd like to write a biography I wrote a biography early in my career of a despicable man who was a Southern slaveholder and planter, governor and senator from South Carolina, wrote down all his despicable thoughts. So he was just a rich target for exploration. And I I wanted to see the world through his eyes. How do you be a person like this? And I've, that's fascinated me from my very earliest days of my historical career, in part because of my own experience, which is how do people do evil things and take it as a routine. How do you get up in the morning if you're a slaveholder in the South? And I think that came from how do you get up in the morning if you're a segregationist in Virginia in the 1950s and 60s? I just wanted to know how people live with experiences, practices that we find unthinkable. So as I'm considering a biography now, I have my eyes on writing about somebody in the 19th century who was just opposite, who always seemed to do the right thing and opposed slavery and risked his life and fought against slavery. And um, there is a, a biography of this man coming out soon so that I have to take a look at what, what that's covered. But I think I might take a piece of this life and ask the other question, how do people come to make admirable choices in the world, as opposed to the people I've focused on mostly, which are the people who've made choices 
but it's very hard for us to comprehend or forgive. So interesting. Wow. Well, if there's one thing that you want people to take away from necessary trouble, what would it be? It would be that things have definitely changed since the 50s and 60s. That we can't say everything's the same. Everything's been terrible forever. We should look back and be grateful for what isn't the way it was when I was growing up. And that should inspire us to recognize that we can change things again, that where we are is not inevitable. And we're not back in 1950 or 1960. And we don't have to be where we are now, 50 years from now. So I would hope it might encourage people to be optimistic, even in trying and difficult times about what can happen and what they can do to make it happen. Amazing. And that nine-year-old girls should continue writing the present. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a nine-year-old girl, so maybe we'll do that too. Good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I Thank you very much. It was great to meet you. I hope I see you around at one of your reunions. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 